Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the Cobra Kai of Extreme Metal Podcasts. I am the death metal guy, a.k.a. Dim Mock is my favorite Asian metal band. And I am the black metal guy, a.k.a. Diablo 3 was an inside job. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have not even looked at any of the information about Diablo 4. I, I, I refuse on principle. I, I mean, yes, Blizzard is just bad, basically. But, um, you know, um, Diablo 2 was a good game. Um, oh, it's a classic. That, that is, a, uh, that, Diablo 2 is part of extreme metal canon. I feel. That's that's right. Yes, um, there's there's a, know, there's a set of video games that are probably just extreme metal canon. You know? mm-hmm. Well, clearly it's. I mean, all the design is metal influenced. Obviously, that and uh, Soul Reaver Legacy of Cain. Yes, that one. Um, Dark Souls, uh, ori- obviously. Dark Souls, the original Doom. Uh, Castlevania. Castlevania, the old Infinity Engine RPGs like Baldur's Gate and Planescape mm. Torment. Uh, yeah, there's. A, that's what we'll do. We'll create a a list of extreme metal canon uh, video games, games. You're al- video games you're allowed to like in extreme metal. Um, <laughs> as, the, you, um, as you hang out in your hut, you're allowed to have you know a <laughs> console where you can play some yes. of these games. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, oh, credit where credit is due. The was an inside job format is definitely the death metal guys uh, creation. Um, <laughs> That's a, a absolutely a fed operation. That's that's what it was. That was a, Diablo three was a, an extension of uh, MK Ultra, designed to target mm-hmm. gamers. <laughs> All right, so oh god, oh uh, yeah, hey everybody, uh, sorry for the delay on this. I got my uh, my second mark of the beast uh, from my uh, second COVID shot, and I was laid up for a couple days, but. Uh, you know, my cell phone reception is incredible now, and I'm totally rethinking my opinions on, like, Thrash and Melodeath now, so it's honestly, it's been pretty beneficial. For, for information on the Mark of the Beast, please see the official uh, Mark of the Beast website. Oh. <laughs> okay, so, uh, regular housekeeping. Um, social media, follow us. Me, the Death Metal Guy on Facebook at Terminus Podcast, and the Black Metal Guy on Instagram at Terminus Extreme Metal. Um, by the way, I've noticed for some reason when I'm doing the show, I'm doing all this like girly, like red scare vocal fry. I really need to stop doing that. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, and then if you want to get really involved, and there's a good reason to do it now. Uh, so you can support us on either uh, Patreon or Subscribestar. Someone's going to sign up on Subscribestar one day. It'll it'll eventually they will. happen. <laughs> Some insane survivalist will do it. But uh, yeah, from so the hut, from from the hut where they're playing the original Fallout over and over again. It's <laughs> acceptable, you know, because mm-hmm. it's true. Um, so three dollars and up gets you access to the Terminus Prime bonus episodes. $5 and up gets you access to the Terminus Black Circle, our private Discord server. And uh, now $10 and up gets you access to voting privileges, combining the past two tiers in a, a wonderful sort of harmony. So uh, if you want some influence on what we cover on our bonus episodes uh, and you pledge 10 bucks a month or more, uh, you now have access to uh, a private channel on our Discord server where you can vote uh, for what album or albums will be featured in the upcoming podcasts. 
Uh, this is a feature we've promised for a long time, and now we've actually implemented because we have everything together for it. Uh, so if anyone is uh, really enjoying uh, our bonus material, for those who aren't familiar, we tend to uh, cover a lot of older records that we really love, uh, try to cover some deep dives on kind of obscure scenes, that sort of thing. Uh, so if you want more of that, but you'd like something maybe more specific out of it, uh, well, 10 bucks a month gets you access to the democratic process. And, I mean, who, who could ask for more than that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we've got a show... Uh, usually we, we try to do this thing where we establish some sort of meaningful thread between the album, some sort of overarching theme. It's never something we intend originally, but we come up with it on the fly. There's none of that here. None of these albums have anything to do with each other whatsoever. But <laughs> our, our, our theme is chaos. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Very necro. Speaking of necro, Black Metal Guy, you've got the first record of tonight. What have you got? Yeah, honestly, this is, you know, we've talked about how nobody calls black metal necro anymore and how it's actually kind of a sound that has gone out of fashion. Uh, mm -hmm. Thankfully, I'm happy to say we are covering Sorguinazia's Negation of Delirium on Iron Bonehead, which is a pitch-perfect execution of the necro ideal. Um, and we'll get into what that is for all you whippersnappers. <laughs> All right, next up we have a Dark Fog Eruption with The Illusion of Oblivion and Opulence. Uh, this is a translation of the title, which is written in Japanese, and uh, I tried my best to learn how to pronounce it, uh, but uh, it did not work out for me, so we're going to have to go with that for now. Uh, unsurprisingly, this is a one-man Japanese black metal project, and this is the second full length. Um, and kind of coming off uh, some of the weird excursions we've made into more obscure underground Japanese stuff, uh, this is following, uh, following that trend for us. I'm really excited to talk about that one. Uh, after our interlude, uh, it's been a few episodes, so of course the brutal death has to come back. Uh, this time it is with Neoplasia's Stirring Clots out on Grinder Sirajano Records. Uh, Neoplasia is a, a brutal death band from Argentina who've been around for a while, but I was not familiar with their work until uh, stumbling across this new record. And for anyone in the know uh, for Brutal Death, who your ears might perk up when you hear this, uh, it actually features none other than Marco, Marco Petruzella on drums, uh, which is probably going to immediately get a lot of people interested in this one. I thought it was a drum machine at first, but now it's, it's just Marco doing his thing. All right. And uh, last up, uh, I've, I've finally done it. I've smuggled a neo-folk record onto the show. Uh, this is uh, Barari Got by Harul Vinay, out on Old Mill, with a limited tape edition on Frozen Woods, a label in Italy, where I think the woods are rarely frozen. Maybe maybe in the north. Milan. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so this is uh, neo-folk with a Himalayan flavor, made by a guy who, at least right now, is residing in the Himalayas. Uh, so, uh, and there's some connection to uh, black metal musically here. So, stoked to talk about that. 
All right, and we are back with the first record of the night, Sorguinazia's Negation of Delirium, out on Iron Bonehead. Uh, So, Sorguinazia has only done one release before this, which was an EP in 2016. That EP was released, among other things, by, among others, Vault of Dried Bones. Uh, Sorguinazia is from Canada and released stuff on Vault of Dried Bones. It's a two-member project. The main songwriter, the guitarist, appears to be a lady. Conspiracy theory, this is a project with Mars Segment from Antediluvian on guitars. Um, that's my guess, um, just in terms of uh, just probabilities. Um, and uh, it appears, I hear some people calling this war metal because of its proximity to that scene, and you can certainly hear the inflection. Right, but uh, is this war metal, death metal guy? I I don't even know what the fuck war metal is anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> like for for uh-huh. war metal is a, a term that has loosened substantially just over the past five years. I I mean I know I know like old heads that are like if it doesn't sound like bestial war lust, it's not war metal. I'm not quite that restrictive with it, mm-hmm. but I would just say this is like a a slightly deafened black metal record. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it is. To me, this seems, um, like a remark. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it espouses the necro idea of how black metal should sound, which is specifically about tone and sound quality and maybe certain things about songwriting, uh, say like putting intensity above, an abstract notion of quote sick riffs um and yet of course this record has some sick riffs but let's listen to the very beginning of it listen to how they uh listen to how this sets up an expectation and then just bashes it this is from the very beginning of the record black spell of supremacy So you hear how that kind of um, clustered arpeggio at the beginning uh, might instantly direct you to that kind of orthodox cavern sound we've been talking about on the show, right? Oh yeah, the first time I heard it, before we got to the rest of it, I was, I was like, oh no, what what have you gotten in? What have you gotten us into again? You know. Yeah, yeah, because that that as as authorist record was not great, right? And we've talked about mm-hmm. how there's a bit, maybe a bit of a glut of things plying this vein of kind of 
war metal, cavernous death metal meets orthodox and disobm kind of stuff right so yeah that first riff i heard it and i was like oh okay geez all right this isn't how i thought it was going to sound and then it just turns the one note in that phrase into a drone note and drops into chording under it and goes and uh you know um uh that is an approach that is much more reminiscent of sort of neglected aspects of second wave black metal. Right? Yeah. Uh, I was uh, especially, you know, uh, Dark Throne, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, there's a lot There's a lot of Dark Throne and Mayhem uh, sprinkled all throughout this record. Yeah, I think, if anything, the basic melodic structures are probably pretty Mayhemic, but there's a Dark Throne interest in, you know, I think we often talk about the interest of the parts of the dark throne records that nobody listens to i always yeah. you always talk about the rest of transylvanian hunger i always talk about the last two songs on under a funeral moon mm-hmm. um but interest in sort of focused repetition with uh building not not just in a static way but building to sort of massive transitions right and you could hear it uh sort of spilling out of that drone into the main riff at the end uh it's um we talked about made this a bit on the show and i think maybe i was talking about it with the guy from gallows or we talked about it in the gallows review also maybe that uh this idea of a necro style of black metal that was known in the early 2000s and sort of i think replaced by the phrase raw black but raw black refers to a different sound from necro mm-hmm yeah, I mean, necro has always been this uh, descriptive term of a sort of atmosphere. You know, something... I've always thought of it as something ghoulish and necromantic, you know. A lot of the time it usually referred to stuff that was rawer than usual. But as far as, like, second-wave black metal goes, I mean, Day Mysteries is the most necro thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say necro is an approach to um, the key difference between Necro and the current raw tape black aesthetic is um, Necro is interested in power, musically. Yeah, Necro wants to be heavy. Yeah, Necro's guitar tone is made to sound good, just not like it was produced in a fancy studio or with a lot of equipment. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and, you know, and there's... Uh, yeah, it's it's how do you sound good on a shoestring, and how do you sound good in a way that is really, uh, um, how do you produce a tone that has some body to it and some uh, force to it, while also sounding kind of strange and uh, abrasive, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, so, and especially that sort of uh, focus on having a cold tone that emphasizes high end the higher end of the sonic spectrum even if you're playing on the low strings while not sounding like drill bit kind of needly stuff or like scratchy static yeah um, not just not just pure too much gain high frequency noise in the place of a tonal center yeah and the structures of the songs are directed towards producing you know uh uh, powerful body music effects, right? Rather than just this empty notion of really raw tone 
that's filled in with these florid poppy riffs that the vampire people like now. <laughs> right. It's, um, uh, the, so the vampire people. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, this is, uh, um, werewolf, uh, yeah, Team Jacob, right? Um, <laughs> Team Jacob Black, not all the way. Yeah, um, so this record, so this is a very necro record, um, and in some ways it could have been written back in the early 90s, but unlike a lot of the things we've been covering, we've been covering a lot of pretty stuff ranging from, like, pretty cool, like the last How to Cameo, to, like, really sick, like Gandot or, uh, who else did we review recently? That's just sounded super nineties. Oh, you like the Chavot, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Stuff that sounds very nineties and is, uh, um, in various ways, people are finally producing music that really sort of gets what was great about that stuff, and and about sides of it that have been neglected. But um, where even the most sort of forward thinking of those bands, um, aww. Um, Wilkins agrees about forward-thinking black metal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Key thing is that uh, uh, many of those bands, at least, are, you know, with a band like Giandod or with um, Hate Spirit, less so. But a lot of those other bands are firmly rooted in how do we make something that is distinctive but sort of musically exists back then, right? Yeah. This yeah. has that sound, but it is also oriented forward. This is a like and maybe intensely so and it's in part because uh not only it could have been made back then nobody did but not for incidental reasons nobody made it back then because nobody had all the technology at once mm -hmm. uh like so what sets this apart is one mastery of shaped noise you could hear it in the tone there you'll hear it more but there is influence from industrial and drone music throughout this free guitar playing, bends, feedback, stuff you got to a degree on the antediluvian record also. Um, and the other one is, number two, is convulsive uh, intricate rhythms, right? Achieving intensity by these really fast kind of uh, volatile moves on the fretboard. Um, and, you know, uh, in, intense sort of non non-linear drumming right and yeah. when people did go in that direction right it's towards one of your favorites grand grand declaration of war which is more sort of remote and technical not remote it's more technical yeah yeah it's it's deliberately technical using technicality to be alienating yeah so this is an so this is this record has a kind of extreme rhythmic intensity but not in a technical way, in a kind of very intuitive, barbaric way. Like, how can we move these chords back and forth to break people's necks kind of way? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, so these are both things that we heard in various ways on the last Antediluvian record. Antediluvian's more tech than this, for sure, but not conventionally, really. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, yeah, it makes this... Uh, it is doing something very new in a way that passes the Euronymous test. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, you got any other overall th th thoughts, or should we get into the uh, the record? Oh, well, I mean, I can get into my overarching thoughts, but let's, let's start playing some music, and we can kind of pick it apart that way. All right, well, yeah, well, why don't you... Do you want to play your sample, then? Just play Ecstatic Karmic Impunity. 
Well, I can't even announce my own samples anymore. My God. Oh, That's sorry. I like it. on the show. <laughs> so, sorry, I like that sa- that song title so much I couldn't help saying it. <laughs> yeah, so ecstatic karmic impunity. So, well, I mean, I guess this will kind of get into my overall thoughts. Uh, I like this. Uh, I like this more than most of the whatever we want to call it, like war metal adjacent stuff that's been coming mm-hmm. out lately. Um, but it feels like with a lot of this kind of music or, you know, stuff in this vein that we're seeing where it's kind of hewing this delicate line between old school, more traditional extreme metal and more arty exotic ideas. I feel like pretty much all the bands we've heard thus far tend to play more strongly in one field than another. Mm-hmm. Um, and for these guys, I think they really are at their best when they're just kind of grinding out straight up second wave black metal. And uh, the beginning of this track, Ecstatic Karmic Impunity, is a really good example of this because we've just got, you know, the, these big kind of dark throne and mayhem riffs, maybe a little bit from Kraft, who are a band that I don't really like, but a lot of people I respect are really into them. Uh, right. But Catharsis. like you said... Yeah, catharsis, stuff like that. So it revolves around those kind of elemental riffing ideas, but then you've got a weirder sense of timing and, you know, kind of more densely woven rhythms and actually, notably, a really interesting production job, which is helping to do some of the lifting on this record. So uh, Mm -hmm. we'll uh, check this one out from the beginning.
as you can hear, most of that riffing, it's not a one-for-one -one copy of anything from the second wave by any means, but it's clearly heavily inspired by Dark Throne and Mayhem, uh, which is fine. You know, good black metal probably should be inspired by those things. Um, but what you get is, you know, just this this off sense of timing, you know, you know, just in the uh, the interval switches that you'll hear, uh, this more abrupt, aggressive sort of rhythmic play in general, and then especially the on the the first the first riff, the first big riff on lead, mm -hmm. the lead yeah, trim yeah. riff was very oddly timed. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is one of those things that breathes some new life into some of these ideas. And then another thing is that clearly these guys are taking something from Cavern Core, which is the production style. Um, because it's it's hard to hear at first just because the guitars in this are so loud and so upfront, but they're soaked in just absurd amounts of reverb and delay. And usually in Cavern Core, the problem is they just let it ring out. You know, it's it's not really doing anything, but here, you it, it's a it's a in Cavern Court it's a huge empty space. Here it's a huge space filled with a ton of noise and just kind of, you know, clattering dissonant reverberation, which makes it a lot more exciting. I think. Well, you know, I like me some clattering dissonant reverberation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, well, um, well, how do you well, how do you read this record though? Do you do you think that they're? I mean, we'll get into some of the I guess artier, for lack of a better term, uh, sections a little bit later. But for me, I think that they're just so good at writing straight up aggressive second wave songs that that kind of that just really dominates the record for me. I mean, the, the stuff that's a little more measured and a little more complex is cool, but I always just kind of want them to get back to this sort of thing. Well, I, you know, I mean, that's a, a good question. I mean, I think my sample might answer that. Uh, I think, um, I think if there's a weak spot on the record, it's the back end, especially around Death Entrance Stand and Saraswati, mm -hmm. um, which get into more kind of, uh, at least in certain places in Death Entrance and we get sort of more like skull, basically just becomes a skull flower song at certain points, right? And that it kind of loses focus there. Um, I think in um, in terms of the melodic and riffing core of the music, yes, I like when it's most in touch with the second wave stuff. But here's here's the first sample that uh, here's the first. Well, I guess the beginning of the record grabbed me. But here's the first moment that uh, really grabbed me. This is a place where you know um, I think it is forward thinking, but again, not in a way that. Uh, in a way that's pretty consistent just with the, the basic second wave ways of doing things that dominate this record. Uh, so here's one of the most sort of condensed sections that emphasizes rhythm and noise, but does it in a way that I think is like intuitively heavy and cool. Uh, so yeah, Conquering Skies. This is about two and a half minutes in.
so there was a part at the begin towards the beginning of that sample that I just went back and double checked so I could try to hum it uh, where there's this kind of stuttered blasting and the guitar is going something like you know right sort of just climbing around on these chromatics at very um choppy intervals um that is the sort of thing that it produces a rhythmic effect that's a bit like stuff that is more tech but um those are just power chords being moved quickly in kind of a way that is unusual relative to the streaming sense of melody you usually get in black metal. And uh, the effect is, like, that's, like, basically just a crazy headbanging moment. Uh, yeah, yeah. Cloth I mean, a, is... a lot of that it really is based off of just, like, kind of abstracted, kind of dark throne riff shapes, you know? It's like it's definitely made weirder through the interval choice, but the overall effect oh. of a lot of those is pretty similar to stuff you'd hear on Under a Funeral Moon. Oh, you know, I mean, honestly, that stuttering one, I think interval wise, it would be a Dark Throne riff. You know, it has just uh, those sort of clearly defined, very crushingly dissonant power chord intervals right mm -hmm. but just yeah. the timing on it is not very dark throny unless we're talking about like goat lord or something right um, oh yeah yeah so it's uh they, they what they just do is like they break out of a conventional rhythmic form to create extremely high intensity right they're not being it's not technical it's not showily progressive or avant-garde they're just doing it um they're doing it um they're doing it with the ends of it has exactly the same ends that dark throne or mayhem had and they're simply sort of cracking and reforming the original riff structures of that music in order to make music that does those things just different and maybe in some respect you know, in some respects more so, right? The convulsive rhythmic effect isn't something you get in either of them particularly at the beginning. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's one of the core things that makes this band distinct from mm -hmm. so many other kind of like nowadays second wave worship bands is mm -hmm. that interest in these kind of dynamic rhythmic arrangements. Yeah, and which which go hand in hand with sort of, because you're changing the time, you're changing the structure of the melody. And uh mm -hmm having that stuff trading and you know then because then they do sort of spiral that off into this kind of they're messing around with a couple like one motif for a lot of the rest of that song mm -hmm. uh they do some kind of cool choppy out stuff and then they just you know uh hit a just just a stomp riff I just that strut and they hammer it for like 45 seconds at least uh and it's a that's towards the beginning of the record right it's uh it's the second song and when you're when i was hearing the choppy stuff i was like i i was enjoying it i was like oh that's cool but i was like what kind of record is this going to be right is yeah, it going to be it, more it takes is, a while for the record to really define itself is it, it going to different things Yes, is it going to be an antediluvian type, noisy antediluvian, or 
And then when that stomp riff comes in after, I'm like, oh, okay. What that, what that riff says is like, we uh, we are interested in heavy metal kicks and heaviness. <laughs> um, and uh, it's um, there's actually a moment, a quick moment like that on the last Antediluvian where they just rip this kind of double pedal riff. Um, mm. But um, yeah, it is. Uh, it's very out there uh, while being very metal. In that respect, this band reminds me a lot of Concrete Winds more than anything. I don't think it's as alien or as forward-thinking as Concrete Winds. Um, a lot of it, when you look cl more closely at it, is more conventionally black or death metal. But it has oh. a similar kind of way of being very faithful to the original impulse while doing it in a fresh way. Yeah, well, Concrete Winds basically invents an entirely new riffing style. Or, like, a, an entirely new set of interval ideas for riffs that we've never heard before so we can't yeah, yeah, yeah. we can't yeah. knock them too hard for not being as f far along the path as uh, concrete ones are um, who by the way have a new one out in a month oh yeah yeah anyway uh so yeah what did you, uh you want to do your sample next and keep it alternating or go to mine yeah let's go to yours because uh, actually, because I sample one of the tracks that you didn't really like, and I thought it was actually probably my favorite track on the record. Okay, for sure. Well, let's go to... Okay, so going to the one I I like... I mean, there are a lot of really big moments on this record. I listened to this while I was cooking dinner, and, you know, I just put down whatever I was doing to go stand in the middle of my room and flail around, you know, <laughs> and, you know, do the clawfist thing. Uh, it is very, very heavy physical music, and... The nice thing is that it does not particularly, uh, it does not cleave to the artificially post hoc, artificial post hoc distinction between really dissonant, punky second wave black metal and more sort of majestic second wave black metal, right? There's none, none of that distinction. It has all, all, all aspects of the melodic spectrum are here, um, or harmonic spectrum are here. We've talked about that on the show. You know, that's it's a good, just a feature of a good band that gets why the second wave was cool. Um, there are not, and I think maybe with a somewhat benefit of hindsight, this band is good at playing up the most, say, uh, satisfyingly epic moments in the Mayhem guitar sound. So, uh, um you know, mayhem, mayhem style riffs being written by people who are familiar with the pleasures of Satanic War Master. Right. <laughs> so um, let's listen to Negation of Delirium.
So the only comment I really have in my notes is yarg. Uh, well, that that main hook melodic riff is probably the single best riff on the record, I think. That it is really awesome. It's really long, really complex, goes through a lot of different moods and kind of themes, and uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's great. She's hitting those squalling high strings while she's playing one of the most sort of like Dorian scale ideas in it. Mm-hmm. Like it's at a sort of classic. Like, I don't know. There's like some classic, just like whoa, you know, duh, 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 duh. you know. There's there's some just on on some of the most. There's no clean division between the parts of that that are supposed to be sinister and the parts that are supposed to be like. Uh, more heroic, right? It's yeah, just they're all a, the same thing. Yes, exactly. Yes, they're the same picture. It is a sinister aristocratic riff, um, and mm. the it's, uh, it's what all the uh, fancy vampire kids wish they were making. Yeah, I guess I don't think they even wish they do because it's too um, it's it's too scary. <laughs> it's not this romanticized erotic vampire crap, you know. Um, it's uh that's that's a forceful and threatening riff and it's uh and it's like and there's a physical violence in the playing i mean just hitting those really soaring intervals while you're just doing sort of a fly away fry on the high strings is really cool um mm. uh there's a uh, that interest in those kind of squalling tones is very similar to Concrete Winds. Um, yeah. The way, and just the creativity and, like, r- taking time. You know, we've talked about the move towards longer riffs, right? Mm-hmm. Just, this r- unfolds just phrase by phrase. There are, like, four phrases to it. It takes so much, it takes time. Um, there's an idea, like, why do I have to resolve it here? Yeah, let's um, keep going. Yeah, it's... That is a really fucking good riff. And point is, that's not the only moment on, on the record like this. There are moments where they'll just, out of the very nasty stuff, they'll just drop into a sort of like, uh, just like, heavy, you know, sort of uh, heavy moments. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, for my last sample, um, you think that this record takes a little bit of a dip towards the end, but and you mentioned like death and trancing as uh, like one of the big mm-hmm. ones. That's probably my favorite track on the record, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one where the more artsy gestures, you know, for for want of a better term, all kind of connect together. This is like the this is the longest track on the record. It's the one where I feel those ideas really have space to breathe. Um, and certainly I've decried the whole ortho cavern. Okay, this is the part where it's going to get quiet and we're just going to like build up the single idea for a couple minutes thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm tired of it too. But they kind of do that here, but it's really fucking good because the kind of riff they use as the architecture behind it is really unusual for the style because it's kind of like a doom crust riff. Hmm. Uh, kind of a storm crow or sanctum type thing. Well, you're you're really selling me on this. <laughs> it's uh, no, it's it's really cool. And this this is just kind of dropped smack dab in the middle of the song. Uh, you know, it kind of you know the song kind of dissolves. Then we start with this slow melodic kind of doom crust riff, and it picks up and it builds up, 
and then slowly, as it elaborates upon itself, it sort of spills out into a series of more aggressive riffs. And uh, I don't know, I just think it was a really smart, really interesting songwriting. You know, it's, it's got that early emperor quality of how it just constantly sort of like breaks itself down into basic elements and rebuilds itself into a different configuration. Or it's like kind of like old enslaved in a way like that. Um, it's, it's one of the most like outwardly kind of progressive and ambitious parts on the record, which a lot of the times for a band like this can be the stumbling block. It's where you really start to see the kind of the, the cracks in the armor show. But here, I think it's one of the strongest parts of the album. Um, I think if they do more stuff like this, because this stands up, to me at least, right alongside all the more traditional second wave inspired stuff. And if they could elaborate some more on these ideas in the future, you know, just these long involved mostly instrumental kind of not even developmental riff sequences because there is no obvious climax to any of that it's just very exploratory um 
but it still maintains my attention really well. If they could do more of that, I, I, I think that would be awesome. Yeah, maybe the... Um, uh, well, I mean, obviously also, like, I really like this record, so I want to like it more. So I'm receptive <laughs> to the positive things you're saying. Um, and, you know, also, I, I think in terms of, like, feeling like the last half of the record is... Uh, Slower. I think part of that is just the experience of going from the blistering ecstasy of the first four tracks into the slower stuff. It's just mm-hmm. there's just it a calm down effect. I was yeah. I was very focused on how fucking sick and punishing it was, and then like it just started doing something else. And so part of me was just like, oh shucks. Um, <laughs> I'd say with this song, with this particular song, there's about you know two minutes of feedback play at the beginning that I don't know. You know what it is? It's the sequence you point out is awesome. And mm-hmm. there's some good blasty stuff earlier in the track. But the... Yeah, I think what I'm pointing to... That whole sequence is sick. I like the way that that sort of... the I think you're right to compare that to a Doomcrest riff. That's pretty cool. And the way it sort of spirals into this more black metal-y phrase. I hear that. Um, the uh, strange version of... The strange, even more hollow version of a Dark Throne strut is really cool there. Um, the guitar, the sort of noise level of the guitar, whether it's probably a second track or something, the noise, the noise guitar at the end is doing some really cool, uh, kind of, I had a word for it and I lost it, but the guitar just starts sort of like wailing and shaking toward the end, uh, in a really cool way, sort of keening. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's all awesome. I think what I'm talking about is a pacing issue. Mm-hmm. Um, as in, that whole sequence is great, but it comes at the end of a track that has a bunch of sort of feedbacky stuff that then sort of gives way to a cool blasting part. The cool blasting part stops, and we're back into build mode, this time with the Doom Crust riff. And maybe one track that works but if you throw saraswati after it which is the interlude track then there's an aggregate drop in momentum for about 12 minutes um so maybe if they had not maybe if they just went straight from death entrance into neuromancy i mean I, it's it's almost not so much a quarrel with any of the sa- any of the material as just a range overall sequencing but anyway, yeah, that's just me trying to explain what I meant better. Um, like, does it dimin- does does that diminish the overall quality of the album? Not really. I'm not a stickler about that sort of shit. Like the parts I like, I you know I I you know um, I all all the parts where the riffs are happening are sick. Hey, it's Kari from Sepulchre Curse. And I'm Yaku. You're listening to Terminus. Alright, and we are back with uh, the Japanese one-man project Dark Fog Eruption. With the uh, Their sophomore full-length, The Illusion of Oblivion and Opulence. Uh, unsurprisingly, this is an independent release uh, with uh, several song titles in kanji, which uh, we will not even try to pronounce. Um, so we've covered a little bit of uh, kind of unusual Japanese stuff 
uh, on the show over the past year or so. Uh, the most obvious, uh, kind of similar one to this record is going to be the debut record by Black Horizon Ancient Belial, which I think we covered around this time last year. It was probably like, yeah, it was like September, October last year. Um, and uh, I've gone on record being a guy that's just really into the Japanese metal scene in general. Uh, I've always found it really interesting the way they interpret, you know, American and European sounds in different ways. Um, but something the Japanese scene has always struggled with is kind of getting a definitive black metal sound. Um, Japan was pretty late to the game when it comes to black metal. Um, obviously, they had a, a really rich kind of punk and thrash scene, uh, as well as just old school heavy metal and power metal, and uh, even death metal. They were, you know, they were they were on death metal circa 1990 uh, with some of the earliest releases. But black metal, there's always been Japanese black metal bands in fits and starts, but there's never really been a regional scene for it, and. Uh, it's kind of odd. There's no specific rationale as to why. Um, but what goes along with that is there isn't really a defined Japanese sound for black metal. But after hearing Black Horizon Ancient Belial and comparing it to some older stuff, I'm starting to think that uh, maybe there is kind of a Japanese sound. You know, it's a... Uh, it's kind of gloomy. Um, it's uh, it kind of verges on DSBM territory at times, but I think also uh, what we're starting to see is there's a lot of importance placed on uh, stuff like uh, Vinterland and uh, Dissection, maybe some of the flashier, uh, you know, melodic Black Death stuff from years past. Um, Dark Fog Eruption is definitely within this vein of kind of gloomy drum machine based one-man black metal you know clearly kind of a bedroom project um, but here the influences are a little bit different uh, you're definitely going to hear some of that Vinterland and dissection some of the flashier moments but there's the core riffing on this is actually pretty similar to Seigneur Volant uh, which is very popular nowadays in general but you don't typically hear in a lot of the Asian black metal uh, these days. There's a lot of that. There's Although, some contemporary. I'm a sorry, Japanese label, I think. Uh, is it Zero Dimensional that did the uh, Senior Valandry issues? Oh, maybe. I know Horrible yeah. was doing some Senior Valandry issues, but I don't know about it. Yeah, Zero Dimensional did too. Uh, and actually, they played over there recently. Oh, okay. Um, wow, that's but that weird. makes it all the weirder that, like,. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, Zero Dimensional is a pretty respected label that's done, you know, like, reissues for a lot of big bands, um, and has had some of the big Japanese, done stuff for some of the big Japanese bands, too. Um, but, um, it is weird that, yeah, there are these, like, standout, and then, of course, you know, there's, like, the, everyone knows, like, Psy and Abigail and, uh, mm -hmm. all that, right? Sabbath. Sabbath, yeah. Yeah, um, but, like, uh, Barbados, right? That's that's sort of a constellation of names that everyone knows. Um, mm -hmm. But it is weird that it seems like such ripe territory for black metal, and yet uh, it just yeah, it just hasn't totally materialized. I know what you mean about there not being a Japanese sound. I think there is. How's this? I don't think there is a 
there's no single Japanese sound, and it hasn't, as far as I there, there's some deep cult stuff that certain people have followed, but as far as I know, right, it hasn't produced like a sort of yeah, a consistent Japanese sound, a one really big black circle or whatever, right? But there is quintessentially Japanese sounding black metal. I think you're right about, well, certainly it turns out, who knew Vinterland is huge there, right? Because there's stuff on this record that has to be from Vinterland. And um, as there clearly was with uh, Black Horizon and Ancient Balao. Exactly, yes. spoke to him and he was talking about, oh, Vinterland is like one of the most important bands to me. You know? Yeah, so they must be more canonical over there than they are here. Um, and uh, whereas here they were a relatively recent, highly internet discovery that now like Zoomers are discovering, right? Because um, mm-hmm. it's sort of consistent. It's more consistent with nowadays tastes than like 10 years ago. Um, yeah. But... Uh, so Vinterland, so Vinterland's important, but the, but there there is a tradition of sounding really Japanese in black metal, which I would say is Arka Sua and Hakuja. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's some like, I think we talked about Arka Sua when we talked about Black Horizon Ancient Belial. I might have then... done that as a interlude track. Yeah, yeah, I think you did there, and then mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Hakuja. You've also mentioned those are a little bit later. Those are like mid uh, mid to late two thousands, right? Oh, Arkasua starts in yeah, apparently founded in the late nineties, but yeah, it's mid to late two thousands, and the scene they were most they were sort of they had a strong underground reputation when we were when we were coming up, um, mm-hmm. but that scene seems to have receded. Uh, I I'm just checking on Metal Archives. There's a they belong to the AAAA collective along with. Afdema, Anguis Dei, and Absolutized. Um, I don't. I think people were paying more attention to all of those bands back then. Um, mm, yeah. Oh, well, another thing that I got to just thinking about recently because mm-hmm. uh, someone on a, a different Discord server was talking about them. Um, have you ever heard uh, "Endless Dismal Moan"? No, but it's a relatively common name. I always ignore it because it sounds like DSBM, but. It's kind of DSBM. It's it's interesting. It's um, kind of a good name for a band. Yeah, I think that Endless Dismal Moan, especially after hearing this and then actually just as a reference, because I hadn't heard um, uh, Endless Dismal Moan in a while, so I went to Lord of Nightmare, uh, the best-known record by that project, and listened to it a little bit. Uh, I used to have a copy of it uh, when I was younger. And uh, it does sound kind of like this. And then kind of going back, it's like, well, a lot of the Japanese black metal sounds a lot like this. Because Chaos Nine, the main guy behind that project, is, as far as I understand it, kind of like the dead of Japan. You know, this, like, prolific tortured artist who ended up committing suicide and was very influential to the deep underground scene at the time. So I think that may actually be more of a linchpin than I understood about the whole Japanese black metal scene. Yeah, that make that makes sense. Um, but uh, but but we, we've done enough history. So dark I was going to say, we should probably, yeah, yeah. So what did you think about this? So I like personally, I've got a lot of affection for this. I think we we go back and forth in the notes about how we feel about this. I I really enjoyed this record. I basically agree with some of the faults that you find in it I think I just this reminds me of a lot of very cool kind of 2000s bedroom stuff that I would listen to Hmm. Um, 
just kind of, you know, uh, these these records that flew around underground distros and were available for five bucks and nobody ever bought them, except for me, because I liked just, you know, buying random stuff I'd never heard of to try it out. Um, this takes me back to a time where there, there's a pleasantly workmanlike quality to this music of this is a guy in a bedroom making an album and there is absolutely no effort to make it seem like more than that. There, there's something refreshingly unpretentious about this music. Um, but but that's that's enough for me. I've, I've been talking too long. Well, so I'm, what do you I'm, think about this? It's, it's funny because I have no ear for production, so I was like, damn, that's a good drummer. <laughs> Um, <laughs> One day uh, you're going to be able to figure out drum machines. <laughs> it's um, I just assumed it was a guy from the hardcore scene, you know. I think that's it, a possibility. I mean, and uh, yeah. Black Rise and Ancient Blyla turned out was a guy who was a drummer in a couple yes. of pretty cool Japanese hardcore bands. Yeah. So to me, I, you know, like going back over it, there's definitely parts that are good. There are some very good riffs on this. Um, I think the most dependable parts of the record are those that have this Japanese sound we've been talking about. The other big influence on is that is mutilation, especially mm -hmm. filtered through late, slightly later French bands like Celestia. But it's a particular version of the, a better version of the vampiric sound that's become popular now. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, we, we can get into that. But so he's very good at one style of black metal riffing. That seems characteristic for a number of Japanese bands. Um, uh, but along with that, it makes all these gestures towards stuff that to me at least scans as very now. Like, I get what you mean about the bedroom spirit, right? But stylistically, and about trying to make a record that sounds good from your bedroom, right? Which is different from a lot of the raw tape black stuff, right? This isn't mm -hmm. this record isn't trying to win uh, cult points, and I like I do like that. It's got a powerful guitar tone. The guitar tone is cool. Uh, the guy picks really really fast, which can take certain riffs that aren't that interesting and make them quite powerful. Like at the beginning of the record, he just plays one minor six over and over again, and it's really heavy. Um, I, I, at this point, I just assume that everybody in a Japanese metal band is like some sort of like absurdly skilled musician slumming it, because that's definitely a case yeah. here. This guy's a ridiculous guitarist yeah. who's deliberately doing yeah. very simple music. So, but yeah, the other thing is, it sounds to me like a yeah. I think my overall impression, of course, when I heard this, is it's bad, um, mm -hmm. and it not in a way that not that it's like inauthentic or that there's some deep misunderstanding but it sounds like a guy trying to wrap his ears around the construction of certain kinds of black metal riffs um because at least 50 percent of the record is after this more kind of uh muscular aggressive sound mm -hmm. that uh and and also a sort of more a different approach to big melody than this sort of uh capital G gothic mode that you get in some of the Japanese bands. Um, it seems like, I mean, the record starts with a imitation of a Migla riff that is one of the weaker moments. Um, and a lot of the riffing to me, I hear the Seigneur Volant thing, but th they're basically just like a bunch of progressions on here that are like two chord Frank, the 
for the riffs you play when you're first learning that Franco-Finnish guitar style with those sliding chords and just the chords themselves inherently sound awesome to you. <laughs> um, and so a lot of sort of chord progression-y, Sargeist-y, Senor Volandi kind of things. And those are some of the weakest moments on here. And a lot of weight is hung on them. Um, there's some heavy, There's a heavy metal break at one point on the record, and that also sounds sort of like here is what a metal riff is, kind of, in general. Um, I, I think my guess is there's a unique... He's sort of defined a unique idea, which is how can you make music that has this relentlessly gloomy, uh, kind of high-stress aspect to it, while also being kind of uh, driving and um, heavy, right? With Yeah. And I, I do yeah. like that. I think the overall concept is good, and I think like some of the riffs, maybe even half of the riffs I like, but I think there are enough parts of it that seriously drag that I cannot endorse the record as a whole. And it's just, okay, it's the sound enough. of, it's the sound of someone like, I think it's the sound of someone who's learning as he goes, right? Not how mm -hmm. to play guitar, but how to form melodies in this way. Yeah, I think, I, I definitely get what you're saying. For me, it's kind of the reason I like it so much. It's kind of like to you know, kind of respond to your points. It's kind of two parts. One, as we've established, I've got way more patience for generic Franco finish yes. or yeah, like yeah, yeah. Senior Volan riffing than you. And two, I love the kind of just weird auteur idiosyncrasies of it. Like the the kind of learning as you go along thing is something that I really like about that. And, for instance, well, I'll, I'll go to a sample. Uh, the opening of the second track, The Huge Old Pendulum Clock. So, there's actually a few kind of heavy metal breaks on this record. Uh, I know the one you're thinking of, it's like uh, five or six tracks in. That's like the biggest mm -hmm. one, but there's actually mm -hmm. a few of them. Um, so, this opens with a sort of modified second wave riff, but with a very, like, old-school heavy metal picking style, which is a very Japanese kind of thing. And then they slide through a couple kind of simple melodic black metal riffs, but then the big hook riff comes in, which is a straight Seigneur Volande riff, like a modified version of the first riff off the Seigneur Volande EP. But then <laughs> he plays this insane, like, octave bouncing bass line underneath it, which is just so fucking weird and cool as soon as I heard it, just giant grin across my face. All right, well, I don't remember the baseline, so I'm interested to hear this. Yeah, check this one out.
just that underneath it. What the fuck? It's so out of nowhere. I love that. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that that's exciting. Um, it adds, you know, using the bass percussively, right? Mm-hmm. Just by virtue of changing the interval so far, it makes a percussive kind of vibe to it, right? Uh, um, that's cool. That's a very Hakuja thing to do. Um, there's free-moving. Oh, yeah. yeah, on Dew of Blood, there's this awesome free-moving contrapuntal bass that often takes the melody when the guitar sort of holds these chords. Um mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so I like that part. I think I didn't notice that, the bass, when I was just playing it really loud on my speakers. But, oh, yeah, you definitely need, but, um, you need the headphones for that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's cool, and certainly something you could do more. Uh, another thing I was thinking, under that riff, um, yeah, obviously not a huge fan of the riff itself, right? But the way that it works, um, the general outline of the riff especially when you combine it with the bass and the sort of more neoclassical bass flourishes at the end mm-hmm. it sounds like it's patterned on part of the part of the soul reaper riff by uh from dissection oh yeah wouldn't surprise of me the darkness you're the keeper you know it resolves in the same way um and there's another riff later on this record that maybe i've actually sampled that sort of uh also not not quoting again but like patterned on soul reaper so i think like at first i was like does this really sound like dissection but going back over it it's like you know when you were saying dissection but going back over it it's like yes it sounds like somebody like deliberately sort of deliberately finding sort of simpler versions of dissection phrases yeah deliberately stripped down minimal interpretations mm-hmm. because i yeah. think that's a that's a consistent thing throughout <laughs> japanese metal is this love of the sort of you know flourish heavy neoclassical bands and i feel like that feeds into even relatively minimal music like this you know that a lot of the riffing ideas of japanese metal bands seem to in some way be sculpted around those ideas even if they're you know, really stripped down versions of them. Yeah, so when when he does, and so here's an example of that in terms of what do we mean by the Japanese-sounding riffing? Uh, Well, this sample from a track with uh, a series of kanji that I cannot pronounce. (laughs) I just Um, translated it. It translates to deformed shadows. Oh, okay. Well, that's a classic. Um... (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, this is um this is the fourth track. Um I think the third track on this is quite strong. I like that one all the way through. But um mm-hmm. it's also short, sort of short and punchy. But here's the fourth track and this sample gives you a really good example of the contrast between the parts that I that sound very Japanese and that to me I like a lot and I think are well executed. Um, and the parts that are weaker, which have that Franco finish sound. And so in this sample you hear them just switching. It's like you'll hear the good riff You'll hear the bad riff. You'll hear the good riff. There are a couple good riffs, I think, in the sample. But uh, and you'll hear the different harmonic language that's being used between those parts.
Okay, yeah. So the riff in the middle of that sample is the kind of thing that I think is holding this record back. Just I get you. I was I was thinking about that. And <laughs> You know, it's it's one thing to write an elemental riff. It's another thing to write a riff that is like uh, just the general outline of millions of riffs. Um, I get you. You see, I think that's the thing is like, I think that that sort of thing is not so much like Franco finish as like starting to learn how to write black metal on guitar. And I... Uh, it's one of those things that's like so fundamental everyone's written that riff before like when they started yeah yeah i i just i i have affection for the idea of putting that on a record you know <laughs> i like i love the idea of putting I, your first riff on a record like that <laughs> i i mean like by all means put it on a record i'll just say that it's the first riff Right. I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, like, sure, it's DIY culture. You're free to you're free to s send your creations into the world before they've matured. But somebody's got to tell you that <laughs> um, it's, um, you know, and is he capable of writing better riffs? The answer is yes, because uh, it's, surrounded you know, by them. the, the yeah. riff right after that soars. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they have this. There's an example of the neoclassical, the particular neoclassical turn in the Japanese stuff, which emphasizes these, like, uh, there are more sort of half-step slides between chords, sort of seamless half-step slides. There's major minor modulation. It's, um, I can't even, I, I can't hum it right now. Uh, well, but, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because... I, I think that what it is, what sets oh, these guys... Also, there's a lot of changing root notes, right? You sort of, you, you create these slides between chords by changing the underlying strings rather than mm -hmm. the overlying melody. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I think that what's a part of that is, I, I think, and I've got these like elaborate theories based on the history of like Western music in Japan, which I'm not going to get into. But I think that one of the things that we're hearing, especially on that that first riff, that was the one that really struck me with that super dramatic mm -hmm. root note progression, is mm -hmm. that even in black metal, I feel like the Japanese guys have this closeness to certain like blues and jazz guitar techniques, which have basically been excised from black metal everywhere else. Um, they are still playing guitar and arranging melodies kind of within this um, like blues or jazz fusion paradigm, which is really influential to like Japanese popular music. Um, so just like the way some of these root note interactions work is something much more akin to like 16 bar blues than it is a black metal riff as we understand it. I thought you were blowing it. I thought that was sort of uh, bullshit. But then I listened back to it um, just now, and it's like it's got that, that smoky, jazzy quality. Yeah, yeah. I, I was. It does. It's a little bit like um, you know, or like a film It's like you know that. I think that's. Um, 
which that that that's a Zeppelin song. I can't remember. I think it's I think it's Babe. I'm gonna leave you. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, I, I sort of hear that. I mean, that could also be like that's also this kind of like French chanson thing that seems to yes, get in very, there. Yeah, yeah. It's like which it's might kind of that... be itself influenced by the blues jazz thing, but part of the gothic thing in Japan in this in these kind of melodies is this uh um it's not exactly classical, right? It's just highly uh elaborate European vernacular music mm-hmm. that's spilling yeah. into it. And and that itself has a blues or jazz influence. Um mm-hmm. um I do. I yeah. do appreciate you going back and listening before calling it bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. I, I was like, "What the? F-? I, I had to give you the fair shake." Um, but um, <laughs> I, I hear what you mean there. I, I so I guess what I say is I'm not sure it's coming directly. I know that you've you've talked about the, the huge influence of jazz and blues in post-war Japan for sure. So I, I get that. Um, I think, and my guess would be that for black metal bands, it might be coming more directly from this kind of general sense of what kind of French stuff sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a possibility. It's, but, like, either way... Oh, and also it's coming from French bands. Doesn't Mutilation do shit like that? In a much, much, much more primitive way. Yeah. This is this mm-hmm. is a very mm-hmm. sophisticated take. Well, this is, the, this is what Willie would do in Mutilation, but he would, like, fuck up the riff and make it all chromatic and weird. Yeah, yeah. So a band, a band worth mentioning as a possible influence, although it's been years since I've listened to them, is Celestia. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just doing some research on all these, this whole configuration of bands. But Celestia is like alternate universe mutilation. Like instead of people picking up on the really gutter stuff, Celestia picked up on the sort of, the sort of like, you know, the uh, the melodic ideas under it, right? Uh, yeah. Um. But, uh, yeah, so there's there's a good example of the, you know, the good guitar on here. And, you know, how do you find that define that style also? You know, maybe, like, extremely smooth yet extremely high tension. Mm-hmm. Using these sort yeah. of very close, highly half-step ideas and yet not at all in a chromatic way, in a highly coherent way. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's listen to your next sample. Yeah, so now we're going to get into... I think both of us are going to get into the uh, <clears throat> the stuff that's more like Vinterland, um, and I I theorized uh, we need to put this guy in touch with Black Horizon and Ancient Belial so they can do a split together, which I have helpfully titled for them Nippon Black Magic. Um, so <laughs> so there, but here specifically, I think that's a cool idea because here uh, this band plays with a lot of the same Vinterland and dissection ideas that uh, Black Horizon Angel Belial was, but they're much more stripped down and minimal. Hmm. Um, but uh, as we... This is towards the back end of the album, and I think that's where those ideas start to flourish more, and you start to get away from that sort of crypto-DSBM stuff from the first half. Um, and this is from a track called Lunatic Romance. <laughs>
mutilation you were mentioning really comes out on that very last riff on that sample. That could be directly yeah. from like a mid-era mutilation record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that part was all good. That was a very uh, sort of uh, high-density display of the kinds of riffs he's good at and in a good sequence. Mm -hmm. I would say... I would say the last three track. That's the third to last track. I would say from there it really picks up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where it, it starts to really. I, I like the rest of the album, but you're right in that it feels like the album really finds its identity in those last few tracks. Yeah. So what else about those sick riffs do you like? Well, uh, I, I I love that very simple gestural kind of like flourishing heavy metal riff that dun 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 you know it's, it's such a simple idea but again you get that that kind of black key root note fluctuation which has that weird kind of jazzy quality to it and then obviously that huge epic centerpiece riff with that uh descending bass line at the end mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. that manipulates the descent of that riff in a really interesting way yeah, it's, a, it's yeah. a very simple epic riff, but then he tweaks the ending of it. Of course that riff is going to descend, but he does it in a slightly different way that gives it more life. That's just a really good riff, yeah. Um, it's, uh, there he's using, I, I thought of a difference, like, the moving the bass note in interesting ways is also important to say, like, writing something that sounds like actual Satanic War Master as opposed to fake Satanic War Master or <laughs> yeah. actual Seigneur Valand or whatever. But the way the European bands do it is you move a bass tone. You're moving the bass note by whole steps or by, like, minor sixths to produce, like, colossally or fifths, right? To produce these sort of, like, colossal, colossal epic moments, right? Mm -hmm. Uh Whereas there's a lot of sliding by half steps in the bass notes here. But on mm -hmm. that big riff, the big simple riff you were just describing, he's doing more like open, more like whole step open kind of intervals on the descent. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and also I was saying as we listened, but that's basically a Japanese screamo riff, right? That could be on Envy or Swarm or your favorite uh, Heaven in Her Arms, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it, it, there's another riff like that on track three, which is also um, of the early track three. It's very short. It's condensed. It's like uh, condensed, powerful. It's like under three min under four minutes. Um, and that also has one of those sort of overtly kind of screamo riffs that this guy's quite good at. Leaving aside questions of style, I would say that emotionally this record is on its strongest footing when it's embracing the kind of uh, uh, grandiose melancholy and getting more indulgent and sentimental, which is not often a thing I think. <laughs> I was about to say, that's that's uh, usually your arch nemesis. but <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's the strength here. I think that's the stuff he feels and the stuff that's like approximations of like big bang your head uh epic black metal is the stuff that do usually doesn't land as well and the epic moments like that that you know that that sort of screamo -y riff in the middle is super epic just in a different way mm -hmm. um, all right so for me um this is in terms of i think clearest example we've been talking about vinterland the whole time uh 
and sort of beating around the bush. But uh, here is the um, here is the end of the second to last song into the last song. Uh, you'll hear the, I think the sample starts on a main riff to intoxication. It's called is the second to last. The main riff to intoxication is not very good. Um, and we start on that riff, but then things go places in a great way. So you're allowed to do the Sargeist riff as long as you modify the timing just a hair. I mean, you are you talking about the last one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that that way they're doing that is um just yeah, just sort of basically what they do there is the same technique that he's doing on the leads before then. There's a continuity of technique. So intoxication ends, and yeah, then it just blasts off on that riff. That the last track blasts off on the riff you were calling the Sargeist riff. But um, that sort of like taking very simple epic couple string chords and wobbling the sort of top note on them. Uh, in a kind of pulsed way mm -hmm. is um, that's what Vinderland does um, and it gives a instead of making it like I am playing the outline I am playing a chord progression in a not very interesting way it becomes there's some melodic inflection over it uh, and there's a lot of just messing with time like that even if you're just wobbling between you know, just taking the the high note on the chord and moving it a whole or a half step, right? Uh, 
doing that in this kind of pulsed way gives it an individual inflection. Uh, it just puts some, uh, and, and it, you can follow a simple melodic shape over the base of the chords. And he's doing that with the leads at the end of the last track too, right? It's based on just that, the, the main part of the riff is the wiggle at the beginning. Um, and in, in the more sort of, uh, um, more high tension riff before that too it, it works the same way there's and that's a way of shaping melodies that's kind of like more like how singing works in pop songs right you hang around a root note and you kind of go up and down in certain places but a lot of the melodies coming from the pulse often in folk songs too uh um and i think he's quite good at that
after some Hakuja, which was actually pretty excellent. I had no idea that was going to be so completely up my alley. Uh, we go to something completely different, uh, which is Neoplasia from Argentina with their fourth full-length record, Stirring Clots, which is... Whew, what is it? <laughs> What an unpleasant album name that is. Jesus Christ. I don't I don't like the idea of that at all. <laughs> um, so Neoplasia, uh, like I said, uh, full band from Argentina who have apparently been around since like the mid-90s, um, but really only do records on like kind of five to ten year intervals. Um, and mm-hmm. this time we've got the, uh, the regular lineup of the band with the legendary Marco Petruzzella filling in on drums. Um, anyone who's into Brutal Death or kind of Tech Death is going to know that name, but for those of you who aren't into that, Marco is probably one of the best drummers in the world, just period. He is almost certainly probably top five fastest in the world, which is demonstrated very clearly <laughs> throughout this record. It's fast. Um, it is very fast. Um, like I said, when I first heard this record, I assumed that it was a drum machine because it's so fast and so tight. But no, it's just Marco being Marco. And knowing him, he probably just like one take most of these songs. And was just like, oh yeah, let's let's go grab a beer now. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> So Neoplasia, um, I guess, is after a fashion kind of a brutal death band. But just kind of thematically and with... You know, the vibe of the music but really what it is is a continuation of a variety of tech death that was extremely popular in the early to mid 2000s but has kind of faded away now Uh, in that period where i was kind of first getting into extreme metal i really loved that style of tech death and what i'm talking about is stuff like um the first necrophagist record uh, the early work by uh, Spawn of Possession, uh, Yattering. Um, uh, there's a few other bands tucked into that niche, but really what it was was um, the idea of these bands embracing this extremely cold, extremely remote, mechanized style, and not just using that to polish up the music, but really using it as an intrinsic feature of the music to... Uh, to make it sound colder and weirder and more alienating. Uh, the one I always go to, like I mentioned, is the first Necrophagist record, uh, The Onset of Putrefaction, which is honestly kind of a classic to me. You know, people, obviously, everybody has talked about Necrophagist for many years, but usually what they're referring to is Epitaph, the second record, which is much more neoclassical and has bigger hooks. The first one, Onset of Putrefaction, and let me clarify, I'm talking about the original version with the drum machine, not the re-recorded version, is just this horrible mechanical thing. You know, the guitars don't even sound like guitars. You know, all the humanity's been polished out of them. It just sounds like this horrible like mad scientist gore experiment it's it's wonderful (laughs) are we gonna do a bonus episode on that well we could you know maybe if uh people vote on something similar to i can fold that in yeah so necrophagist is tech death yeah i mean well i mean that's kind of a discussion in and of itself this whole like redefining of brutal death metal because back in the day people used to think of necrophagist as like brutal death but nowadays we wouldn't call it that 
You know, there's kind of an arms race in that. Once, you know, once you get some of the just insane shit we've got coming out on New Standard Elite, you know, right. a lot of the stuff from back yeah. then looks a little passe. Well, um, so so what's interesting about this record is that it doesn't... Um, it does sound to me more like the first brutal and or technical death metal I heard on the radio back in the early 2000s. Um, and, well, what makes you think? Is it just the kind of, like, dizzying technicality of it? Or? Um, It's pre-slam. Mm-hmm. There's, it's pre-slam. It has these kind of chugging parts. Um, and the way they're, yeah, it's the way the riffs are constructed, I think. Like, um... It doesn't sound like all the stuff I heard back then, not that I have a particularly good memory of it, but like the way the riffs are constructed as these sort of mazes of wildly oscillating uh, notes that mm-hmm. are, you know, extremely dissonant. Um, that There was stuff like that back then. A lot of it, to my ears at the time, sounded quite random, um, right? I didn't like it. Uh, this I certainly have more time for now, um, but uh, does sound... Occasionally it reminds me why I always, you know, it occasionally reminds me of my initial prejudice of tech death and brutal death for sure. Prejudice against. Um, but, um, but so it doesn't have the slam stuff and it doesn't have the 16th note chug run at all. Mm -hmm. Like, I think my gold standard for what brutal death metal now sounds like is that exterminated record you played. Right, which <laughs> that, like, that is very defining for the yeah, style. Which even if I'll never listen to it again, I would just extremely respect it for its just consistency, right? And and the kind of weird anti atmosphere it gets. Um mm-hmm. but the uh so those kinds of um forming kind of complex motivic riffs out of this sort of streams of chug being played much higher on the fretboard than aggressive chug. Is like tremolo chug basically right this band doesn't do that right they're, they're like playing trem lines or just kind of like single notes like tapping or something mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's a lot of like very I, I think a lot of this is tapping uh just extremely intricate tapping passages like almost like psyopis level stuff uh, there's barely any palm muting. There's barely any stuff that you could call a death metal riff in the way that we understand it conventionally. And there's none of the sort of crypto thrash stuff you get in the psychroptic brand of tech death. No, no. I, I would say maybe the closest thing this is to, I had to look it up, was that record you brought on the show earlier this year, uh, the one by Obsolete, Animate Isolate, but taken way further down that kind of hyper tech death rabbit hole. And Obsolete was very thrashy in a lot of ways. Like, almost the elements of the music, it was almost like a technical thrash record. But the parts Mm -hmm. that were very brutal death sounding were like this. I hear that for sure. Um, I also immediately... So, okay, that's a good connection. I immediately like the timbre better on this than most brutal death. Right? The sort of um, kind of... uh, uh, you know, I've referred to it, but at its at its best, it's a particular way of making a very implacably inorganic sound. At its worst, it sounds plastic. This has a different way. This sounds inorganic in the way that, like, Converge did. This um, is kind of, like, chromed off and alloyed. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's not do yeah, it, exactly. Like like slam is sometimes like digital like this sounds like metal and yes, the record constantly sounds like machines breaking down. Um, <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> whereas like a lot of the sort of slam influenced brutal death sounds more just like digital hell. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah, well, this is not a record particularly concerned with being heavy in a conventional. It's not very bassy at all. The mixing on but this, but god really damn, it's extreme high tones. Yeah, it, well, it's it's it's, extreme. Um, it's it's deliberately flattened out. You're yeah. just supposed to pay attention to these performances. And know? here, let's get to the uh, my first sample. I've got a way of getting into it. Is just like the chug patterns on here are not like Brutal Death or even what Death Metal has become. Uh, they're really cool, and they're based on the sort of, you know, it's a diff- it's a version I'd never heard of playing sort of literally sheet metal-sounding chugs focused on <laughs> high end. So, you know, I, you know, I like that kind of amoebics chug sound or whatever, right? The scraping chug. This is like a very technical kind of version of that and the rhythms on it sound like Dillin- old Dillinger escape plan or like ministry or something I don't mm-hmm. know like yeah. it reminds me of like just one fix so uh, listen to like patterns of diverted excitation First of all, that's sick. Jesus um, Christ. I always have to remind myself that that's a human being playing drums. Or really any of the instruments on this record. You know? Yeah, that's... um. No, I think it's a fax machine man, it, malfunctioning. <laughs> it, it's... Well, lo- <laughs> I love it. It's, so, it's really, it's really like nothing else in metal. <laughs> like it, it really is, the, it, because that specifically, uh, the part you sampled there is something, a sort of technique they're going to constantly. This like sharp stop, unison chugging stuff that keeps working its way around the fretboard. It's really not comparable to anything else. I mean, the closest thing is Meshuga, which I think they're deriving a lot of influence from, but it doesn't sense. sound like them either. No, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it does connect to the Sorguinazia. It's just like doing things that nobody else has thought of because they seem absurd, right? <laughs> to generate, like, it's just like not done. It's like not done to do something 
that fast or intensely, right? And for yeah. both these bands, these kinds of like high speed rhythmic gestures are ways of generating extreme intensity rather than convolution. Um, yeah, it's, uh, not, it's not intended to be heavy. Like, that's not a mosh part. It's just fucking weird. It's pretty heavy. You just can't headbang or mot. I think that part's really heavy, but not in a way that you can, like, dance to, certainly. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's just kind of, um, it's a thing, you know? In terms <laughs> of, like, music that sounds material, that's just a big titanium cube. Yes, exactly. Mm. No, that's. A, I think that's one of the things that has me so excited about this record is just the incredibly alienating quality of this music. Like it's it's Kafka esque in a way. <laughs> and, and, but a thing I want to get is you know in terms of the machines thing, I think it almost has a retro concept of technology. Like there's brutal death sounds very technological sometimes in that the tones live on the internet. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. the tones live on the internet, and for better or worse, the music is like digital sphere tech. This really sort of reminds everyone that under the circuits, there's like, um, you know, uh, under the floating world of of zeros and ones, right? There's like machines doing things still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's something I mentioned in the notes. Is a lot of this has a. a an oddly industrial quality to it. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, something that I'll I'll get into uh, is the way the the guitar writing on this record is fascinating. I think that any of the people in the the kind of like tech or brutal death sphere should be checking out the way these guys write riffs, um, because riffs on this record are used almost in the way that tape loops are used in industrial records. They're Time is contorted, you know, they, they've got an individual phrase, it gets worked around the fretboard, and in parallel to that, they're stretching it out through different time signatures, or they're compressing it, or they're affecting it and kind of mutating it in different ways, in the same way that, you know, Throbbing Gristle would do with like a, a short sample on a tape, you know. Play it slower, play it faster, uh, you know, chop it up, add effects to it. It's really fascinating. You know, this is not, this is thoroughly inorganic music, and they really make that into a strength. Hmm. Sorry, I just, yeah, (laughs) no, you can can talk. I thought you were going to the next sample. Let's go. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can. So, uh, involuntary psychiatric containment. Um, so this whole sample's fucking awesome. The centerpiece is going to be about 30 seconds in where we're going to get something very similar to your sample where you're going to get this bizarre, like, polyrhythmic chug-against-blast-beat section that sounds like it's in 4-4, but if you pay really close attention, you know it's some, like, weird 16th note configuration instead. Um, but then... You'll get into some of some of the more like blasty riffing on this in this like abstract pointillistic quality it has. Everything is very like delicately tapped out on this record. Even as heavy as it is, you can tell these hands are really light and kind of dancing on the fretboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we'll really get into the idea of okay, think about these riffs as like tape loops. 
I I love the way they keep they keep ruining your expectations. You know, every riff gets played like one and a half or like two and a quarter times gets abruptly cut off with a with a time change and then, you know, pushed into some completely different direction. And of course that whole middle section of those like like nauseating like blast beat chug riff dancing tap pattern in the other ear. It, it, it's so like deliberately you know, aggressive and demanding of the listener. It's like you feel exhausted by the end of one of these songs. It's I, I really like it. <laughs> There's a um, I mean, a, a moment that was surprisingly heavy metal to me was the the way they initially have that kind of thing, um, going over that sort of stuttered beat with the uh, mm-hmm. the little chug under it, and then it just does a it goes into a thrash beat. And sort yeah, of, yeah. sort of locks in over that like a Slayer riff for a minute. Like, that's not something you get on the first listen through. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, but like that was heavy. I'm still gonna say this album is kind of heavy. I mean, certainly yeah, much more is. than I'd. I mean, certainly yeah. much more than I'd expect from music like this. You know what I think it is? It sounds a lot like Tech Death that was very clicky back in the day, but this isn't clicky at all. No, no. It's, um, you know, because the problem was, like, the clicky Tech Death, you know, the clickiness was always to, like, give more room for, like, bass. You know, give more room for, like, low-frequency heaviness. This doesn't care about that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this is so resolutely focused on just etching out these performances mm-hmm. in this really pristine quality that it, it paradoxically ends up heavier, you know, because mm-hmm. there is there's nothing to latch on to in a sense as a listener. You're just thrown into this. Um, you, you know, this kind of reminds me, you know, when I did that interview with uh, Nikhil from Anal Stab Wound. Uh, he was talking about the idea of, you know, wanting to learn harder and harder music. The idea of brutal death metal being a, a sort of, like, physical athletic process for the mm-hmm. player. And it's like, I, I've started to apply that almost in the reverse direction. The idea that certain brutal death like this is almost this, like, physical athletic process for the listener. Where it, it, it becomes so difficult to decipher like for instance defeated sanity would be in that basic ballpark of it demands so much from the listener there's like a, a training process you have to listen to these records a few times before you can even really begin to pick them apart um and i think that's really um, cool but okay well i think there's an important difference like defeated sanity has a visceral impact that this does not Right. Yeah, okay, uh, that's that's fair. Defeated Sanity has slams. You know, and it operates... Big riffs. And the riffs are written often outside conventional metal ideas of time, but yeah, it does have really big riffs. Um, mm-hmm. Like, certainly for it all to... I think it's, you know, it's more physical and it's less demonstrative. It's probably more sophisticated, but has... You know, does this record have something to prove? Not compared to a lot of, not compared to like masturbatory tech death, right? But I do mm-hmm. think there's a significant difference between um, uh, demanding attention in the way that I don't know what would I say like 
you know, when we listen to that Defeated Sanity record, we were comparing it to like Mahavishnu, like Birds of Fire. Mm-hmm. Or you could compare it to, um, I, I mean, my jazz reference points are pretty shallow, but like, you know, Coltrane, Love Supreme or something has these sort of like powerful melodic shapes in it that just move in ways that are going to be alien initially to your ears if you're used to Slayer. Mm-hmm. Um, but like this is, um, I would say that this is closer to athleticism for the listener than that is. And I would say that in mm-hmm. terms of jazz, this is closer to like hard bop. Like yeah, really yeah. intense technical bebop. I don't know. Like, um, I don't know, like Charlie Parker shredding scales or something. And, you know, I don't like a lot of hard, like a lot of that shit just completely loses me. You know, it's sort of, that stuff is sort of paragon for jazz in terms of demanding and sophisticated and like, like top-notch improv, right? Uh, this you can, like, even, you can even go for something like Mingus, you know, I, I'm a huge Charles Mingus n- guy. No, n- I don't, I mean, Mingus is, I think Mingus is much more direct. Well, that, that's actually, that's a weird thing I've noticed, which is a lot of people, like, online talk about, you know, people who aren't from metal backgrounds talk about Mingus being this, like, incredibly demanding, incredibly difficult music, but metalheads immediately latch on to Mingus. It's like, oh, yeah, this makes this makes perfect sense. Where do you guys No, I mean, it's sophisticated. <laughs> it has big, it has big low riffs in it, like Defeated Sanity. I'm talking about stuff that's like... And this, uh, um, Neoplasia definitely has something in common with that. I have more time for it, A, because it's death metal. Um, B, uh, uh, and, you know, because it does have, um, well, there's a weird way where pain, the best of the most sort of the best of the most really technical jazz stuff, right, will reward your attention. If you pay attention, you get some degree of physical kick from it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, you know, you know, I think, I feel like what you're getting at here is that, like, in a record like this, there's a way that, like, the immediate sensation is led by the sort of abstract thing. Like, the yeah. thinking, the thinking precedes the feeling, but there mm-hmm. is feeling. It's really weird. It's like a ghost generating a body or something. <laughs> no, I like that. I like no. It's like this is this is music that has to be considered. It, 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 it like it, it's music in reverse. You know, it's like mm-hmm. usually you feel something up front and then you're thinking about how they got there. Here, all all the thinking is front loaded, and only after you've kind of like you know, assimilated or digested it, then you can get to some of the feeling. You know, it's... That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. I, I never thought of it that way, but that's true. Well, cool. Let's uh, listen to some more death metal. Um, Fuck yeah. <laughs> I've got a... You know, this relates back to me. You you asked me what I go to death metal for as opposed to black metal, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, music... Oh, when I like want to think in a certain... Music that's like promotes a certain kind of thinking because there's this like highly distinct forms interacting in these kinds of alienating ways and like Mm -hmm. the structures evolving and stuff um and so like this record definitely has that but uh let's go to uh, that was something i figured out about my my taste by from your question which was a good one um but uh prolonged agonizing period this Uh, is a really good song 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is, um, AKA every lady's worst nightmare. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think that's what they mean by period, although it probably is also every lady's worst nightmare. Um, <laughs> but, um, this is, so this is the melodic one and there's a, uh, there's a big riff, probably the closest to a big riff on the record. And, uh, then just listen to how it evolves from there. The song is over now. <laughs> I just, oh man, I, I, listening to this again, I really liked it the first time, but listening to this again, God, this is a really cool record. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really good. Um, in terms of rhythmic phrasing, I mean, honestly, so two thoughts. Um, uh, the bebop comparison is probably more. I mean, we were drawing that comparison kind of with Nick Hill's last record too, the Anal Stab Wound, right? That that, that especially yeah, that yeah. song towards the end that started from almost like a kind of Miles Davis just trumpet little mini trumpet phrase, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's a similar kind of motivic songwriting being used here, right? And not mm-hmm. in the way that like I know that most brutal death metal songwriting is like you've talked about sort of having this like cellular unit of like notes and moving them around the fretboard right but a more free-flowing motivic kind of thing is happening here um you almost can't this is that kind of you know if you're like a guitar music guy you might think king crimson right but uh also well, it's just very, it's extremely jazzy it's just yeah it, it the jazz is just so goddamn fast on this it's so yeah 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 
This, um, guy, this is probably the fastest record of the year that we've covered. You know? Probably. And especially in terms of, like, absolute tempo is one thing. But, like, this feels very, very fast. Um, mm-hmm. Not in, like, a ripping way, but it's very fast. But so you get that, um, so you get that initial theme, and then everything that follows, follows from it. But I challenge you to tell me where that initial theme ends. You know what I mean? Like, because there are many variations on it that crop up again and again. Uh, even something like the original motif pops up again a minute later. But it, um, it's just like, it's not like, um, it's just the beginning of a structure that keeps iterating. You can't really isolate the... It's not like there's a first riff and then a bunch of other riffs related to it that come after it. Like, that whole sequence, the melodic unit is that entire, like, uh, two-minute-long sequence. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. listening to this again, I believe that... I'm starting to think that all of these songs begin... Like, it's even more cellular than regular Brutal Death, where it's like all of these songs are built around, like, a single stem phrase that they constantly return to uh, as a sort of like circling pattern except they're doing it so quickly and abruptly and they're working it in so well, many different ways you can't even decipher it as a listener and the way point. they're and the way they're doing that has more to do with how organic melody works than mm-hmm. it does with like kind of this uh you know drag and drop kind of songwriting on some of these other bands like this is um you it's like very seamless and flowing uh and it uh i don't know what am i trying to get at here like um it's got it's got a jammy quality despite how insanely technical it is yeah so that's one unlikely thing and another unlikely thing i think i take back what i said about it not being crypto thrash on second listen there are so many motifs, mo- things that happen that are just like Slayer at like sped up, like watching a Slayer thing at like two times. The psychoptic um, comes out, I think. I think so, yeah. And even just the way they'll do certain like voice the riff in a heavily syncopated way and then lock in the boop bop boop bop boop bop boop. There are a number of places where a boop top comes in and you can kind of thrash to it. I mean, not like. Your your literal body can't thrash, but your you know your ghost body can. Right? It's, um, <laughs> For all of seven seconds before they destroy it, but, <laughs> that's a long seven seconds. A lot can. <laughs> oh no, a, that's a that's one of the things. It's like it, it sounds like an insult, but it's like all of these like four minute songs feel like they're fifteen minutes long. No, absolutely. Um, like so by the time I got to the end of this record, I felt like I needed to take a fucking nap. It was so exhausting. Yes. <laughs> I think I think in terms of using conspicuous technicality, and I don't see that as quite what Defeated Sanity does. It's just really technical. But in terms of using conspicuous technicality to produce really heavy things I don't know that I've heard anything that tops this in terms of the brutal or tech death you brought on here. And like, this is, uh, yeah, this is it. It's like, not. It, it's not masturbatory at all. If I if I go through like everything I've listened to like ever mm-hmm. beyond stuff on the show, mm-hmm. this is still probably top five. Yeah, 
it That's really impressive. is that fucking crazy. Um, so, Do you think this is year end for you? I, I don't know, man. I keep hovering. You know, not to you know get on well, too much of a tangent, but you know the problem is I've been considering my year end list because you know we're in the last quarter now, and the thing is it's so hard to find appropriate space for say some of the brutal and tech death stuff that I really love because when you're comparing it to like the black or doom stuff that I want to feature it's like it's so hard to compare those things it's such an apples and oranges things because obviously the things that Neoplasia are going for are completely different from a lot of the black metal that I've loved this year so it's always interesting to pit them against each other um, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. there's certain brutal death stuff we've covered this year that's absolutely going in, you know, my end of the year list. But mm-hmm. Neoplasia, honestly, it is so interesting and so kind of thought provoking as a musician. You know, it might sneak its way on there. Um, but real quick, so last sample, uh, final track of the album, "Disturbing Killer Plan." Um, I think this is like the most sophisticated track on the record. It's this is fucking awesome everything that they do um so we're gonna open with this very kind of like ad nauseum or like ulcerate section Mm -hmm. Uh, more ad nauseum because it just refuses to find a tonal center like ulcerate Mm -hmm. does bizarre kind of dissonant stuff but there's always a tonal center to rely on these guys no there's none of that you were just cast adrift in the sea of notes but then it just explodes outwards into all these bizarre guitar flourishes, very kind of Gorgut circa obscura style. But then you'll hear it kind of come together at the end of the sample. You'll get something almost like late era death, just in fits and starts. If you if you peer past the madness, you can see the outlines of things off of like a human or symbolic here.
so that one kind of comes together a little bit more. There's <laughs> there's something more recognizable as a song to regular people happening here. Um, which is kind of like a relief at the end of this record. That there's something you can hang on to a little bit more. It's like, okay, there's there's riffs that they're settling into a little bit more. I mean, it's still absurdly technical, and just the performances are out of this world, but there are things like riffs happening. <laughs> yeah, it's a melody you can go home humming. <laughs> I think it's more just like there's more continuous repetitions of no, I know the what actual same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's just a, it, it's, but man, that opening of that sample, that bizarre ad nauseum dissonant stuff, it's like, it, it's like they hear everything that Ulcerate and Disentomb are doing. It's like, oh, you don't even fucking realize how far we can go with this stuff. That, that is something I was thinking when I heard this is just like, yeah, I mean, the, you know, as people who are normally sus- very suspicious of, quote, dissonant black death or whatever, right? We did like that ad nauseum record because it was like actually delivering the goods in terms of being mm-hmm. sort of challenging music, right? Uh, and disorienting music. Uh, sounding good while being not easy listening. Um, and uh, while, whereas a lot of that stuff sounds bad and is secretly easy listening. The thing I, I think I've been thinking about lately, how, how popular that stuff is, because it sounds quite difficult while actually just all sliding by at once. Um, <laughs> extreme but, middle brow, extreme metal. Oh, for sure. No, Disney Black is for sure middle brow. Um, you know, um, but it's a, uh, yeah, you know, the, the NPR of death metal, um, or black <laughs> metal. But um, it's, uh, this is... Um, was I gonna say? I, th- yeah. So this like this record just wipes the floor with all those bands that somehow tout dissonance or inorganicity as uh, you know th- their thing, and it does so strictly within a brutal death framework. Like you can tell they're drawing influence from Ulcerate, and obviously I'm not including Ulcerate, who are a great band within the swarms of the imitators, right? But they're drawing influence from Ulcerate. They are. They know what this band, bands like Disentomb or whatever are doing, but it um, it does it pretty much all within standard brutal death vocabulary. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, just just, just sped up way mm-hmm. way too fast. Yeah. So, like, um, last question: What are the deathy parts? I thought of you as somebody who didn't like death. I mean, I don't, but, you know... I, I'm don't. not a big fan of death, but I can mm-hmm. recognize where some of those ideas are. It's just... I mean, obviously, this is stuff off, like, human or symbolic, but it's played at, like, double speed. So it becomes, like, borderline unrecognizable. But the influence of later death on technical death metal has always been a huge thing. Um, specifically, bands like... Uh, Oh, let's say, like, I guess somewhat deep cut shit at this point, like illogicist or uh, skeptic, uh, bands like that, um, even even psychoptic to a degree. Uh, just the idea of, okay, we're going to etch out these kind of funky melodic patterns against this thrash beat. The only difference is Neoplasia plays it on 45 instead of 33. 
How's it going? Connor here from Oncology, and you're listening to Terminus. And we are back from ranting about a number of things, as we do from time to time. Um, what, what did that rant include? It included uh, Pale Swordsman, uh, fucking Druidk, uh, Amon Amarth. Hip hop, horror movies. Yeah, <laughs> it included a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's, well, that's why it takes so long to record the show because in every break we take, it's like forty-five minutes of us talking shit. <laughs> yeah, we have to be we have to be grumpy old men. Um, oh, Will Wilkins agrees. Yeah. Um, well, so we are back from the break with Harul Vinay's Barari Got out on Old Mill. Uh, and the tape is on Frozen Woods. Also, I'm not sure I pronounced that right. Um, don't take my word for it. Uh, I'm going to interview this guy next week, so you'll get some uh, fresher information. But why would I? Uh, why would I come out of Terminus interview hibernation interview him? Well, it seems like there's a fairly interesting story here. He's uh, this is a neo folk one man neo folk project that is based in the Himalayas and in sort of northern northern India on the verge of the Himalayas and is centered on uh, centered on sort of the regional mythology and folklore um, and uh, includes some pretty cool uh, ethnographic recordings of apparently never before recorded uh, sort of uh, traditional musicians uh, just sort of, uh, I mean, uh, you know, that sort of the, the intro, the intro and the outro and stuff, and maybe a little more than that, but, uh, pretty cool. And I'm sure, I bet he has a, a trove of recordings he's going to draw on, but, um, the music itself, I think we agree on what's interesting about this, uh, and unusual, like, uh, you might think that if you were going to get sort of, uh, Himalayan neo-folk, that the the melodies, the basic song forms, and most of the melodies, right, would be uh, somehow rooted in, you know, using Indian scales that we don't know, or rooted in those rhythmic ideas, or maybe with more of that kind of uh, the cool percussion stuff you get on the ethnomusicological parts of the record. Not really, right? No. Um... And... Which is, it was interesting, before we started recording, we talked about that. It's like, you know, we, I th I'd like to, you know, give us credit. We are better about this than most people. But at the same time, it was just when we were talking about it, it's like, yeah, I mean, why is there any reason to think that the, the you know, neo-folk from a guy in India would necessarily be intensely Indian, Himalayan, however you want to refer to it? It's like... Uh, He's, he's drawing clearly on all sorts of influences from all parts of the world. So to automatically assume that this would be in every single part reflective of his origin is kind of silly in retrospect. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think and I don't think we assumed that. Right. Remember, remember that really that really terrible review we read of that uh, the guy. Um, oh, the Imhatarakai. Imhatarakai. God, like <laughs> I, I, I thought. I thought this was going to be a, uh, you know, like a. We, we were going to have cool, like, Muslim chanting and Turkish melodies. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, it Jesus doesn't sound Christ. Turkish enough. Turns out it's black metal. Yeah, so I still um, get angry about that. No, me no, too. No, we're we're, we're we're thirty times better than that. But but you know. the, the veins on my forehead are throbbing. Um, however, there is an assumption. Like I think it's the word folk is the thing that's the tricky yeah. word here, right? Because like you know, um, like if you think okay, folk music, uh, local traditions, blah blah blah, right? You'll be thinking. How can this music logical be? How can this ethnic musical base be used in the music? Um, and but it is. Folk, don't get me wrong. Yeah, no, it, it, it is to some is degree, to degree. But this is a case where it's important to remember, even for yours truly, who is listens to a lot of neo folk, that uh, neo folk, right? The whole thing that's weird about it and that throws a lot of people for a loop is that it's not particularly rooted in in, in like. Uh, European folk music. Like, I mean, like, Death in June, um, not at all, right? Rooted in sort of 60s folk psych guitar if, and, like, post-punk and industrial. Like, uh... Neo-folk is a, really a genre of music that inherits a lot of baggage from the use of the word folk that is not necessarily logical for the kind of music it is. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, it inherits a concern with folk culture, right? And, uh, you know, um, you know, regional specificity, pagan tradition, all that kind of anti-modernity, all that stuff, right? But it doesn't have the, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's not, it's like folk music as an idea, right? Not, not the thing. And, you know, sometimes that can, we've talked about how that's often related to, uh, you know, like uh, bad guitar work in neo-folk. Like <laughs> stuff that is, you know, you're playing acoustic guitar, but because it has nothing to do with actual finger pick, you know, actual folk guitar, which involves finger picking or colorful strumming or, you know, whatever, right? It it can be very, very bland. And that's a thing that neo-folk fans talk about all the time. It's, it's the one, it's maybe the one genre where it's most avid fans agree that most of it's trash. Um, <laughs> uh... It's like like I think I think any fan would agree with that. Um, and so like this record admirably does not do that. So what's interesting about this is um, both. <laughs> I think it has a more. So it's using neo folk as a generic base in the same way that like an Indian black metal band would use black metal as a generic base, and you get flavors of Indian. Maybe in an Indian, if you were playing sort of. You know, I mean, obviously the sen- the sound centers on the Kolkata scene, right? But if you were going to play, like, I guess Dressed in Streams is a good example, right? Dressed in Streams is kind of like heathen black metal with some kind of Raga scale stuff happening, right? Yeah, which um, makes sense. Yeah, and this is this is like kind of like that. This is sort of neo folk with some in in cool infusions of Indian style harmony, and uh, and. The baseline guitar music probably has more to do with European, with finger picking as a technique, and with like European folk song than a lot of neo folk does. It, this is very, um, as far as stuff like this goes, this is very kind of riffy, and I think that relates. I think his whole way of conceptualizing this music has as much to do with black metal as it does with uh, neo folk. Yeah, and I think that's a very important distinction. Um, I'm actually interested to hear your interview with this guy because I have theories about how he kind of came to this style of music um, because I, I think that this may be a case where 
you know, I mean, this may be me grasping at straws. I could be completely wrong, but my guess from listening to this is this may be a guy who arrived at neo-folk sounds through black metal rather than vice versa. I, I feel like this is a guy who, especially, you know, given the, the cover songs at the end of this record, uh, this is a guy who got in touch with these sort of folk-oriented songs through folk-oriented black metal and then decided to make music sort of using that as the primary idea. Which is interesting because obviously that immediately gives it a different structure and uh, you know a, a different tone in general from most neo-folk. As acoustic, yeah, as stuff like that goes, it's relatively riffy. Um, yeah. He does two black metal covers at the end. One is from Kveldesanger, which is, you know, the Ulver neo-folk, the Ulver folk album, right, or acoustic album. Uh, mm-hmm. And the other appears to be a black metalization or a, a folkization of a Hordum Rife song. And Which I is a very interesting choice. They're very sort of down the line, late. They're like sort of imitation of late '90s second wave Norwegian stuff. As they're far as I they're neo trench coat. Yeah, it's kind of like possessions type shit. Yeah. yeah, not a big fan of that sound particularly. But um, it's uh, but he makes it sound. I mean, hearing it here makes me want to revisit it because the bass chords are cool. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, we should we should play some, but I think I think some preliminary bullshitting was probably in order for something like this. Uh, and um, you know, yeah, I think this will this could well have something for metal people as well. Uh, so let's go to um, the. Uh, I suppose I'm going to have to ask him about the characters this is written in. I know that these. This script is used in in India, but I've is this Sanskrit script? I I don't know. Um, uh, I in in terms of what the script is actually called, uh, well, my no, my, yeah, the, oh my my Indian friends have just called it kind of like Hindi script, but they're usually second generation, so I don't know a, yeah. a proper Who, name for it. I'm sure he's got yes, I'm sure there's something about this. Um, but uh, basically, we can't read the track titles. Um. And so this is track three, and this is just under three minutes in. Um, it's restrained but skillful guitar work. And listen to his, because there's nothing flashy being done, right? It all depends on his ear. So listen to the very precise choice of intervals and the way that every time one of the basic phrase rep- phrases repeats, um, there will be kind of a, uh, a subtle change in the uh, notes in the chords.
Yeah, so I think that's a pretty good example of this sort of uh, ear for kind of pensive, melancholy, Central European kinds of melodies. Right? It sounds kind of like sad Germans, um, right? Or uh, um, it's uh, he has a. You, you could hear, hopefully, the refined interval choice happening there. And that little, like, that sort of slide he does, right, is, again, a person who can play acoustic guitar gesture as opposed to a person who cannot play acoustic guitar but has chosen to play one gesture. Yeah, um, I was going to mention that. This is clearly a guy who has a lot of experience on the acoustic guitar as its own instrument, not just a way to... not an electric player who is switching to acoustic you know, or a, or a sample, you know, like a, a, a synthesizer user switching to acoustic. Yeah, no, there's a, there's specific techniques, these little, like the, the little trill at the ends of phrases, you mm -hmm. know, as he is sliding into the beginning of this riff, so to speak, again, uh, is something unique to acoustic guitar, you know, that relies on the resonance of that instrument that you can't get from electric. Uh, which is the problem with a lot of acoustic stuff on, uh, you know, black metal records, is the fact that, well, you, they're really just electric riffs that you're playing on an acoustic guitar. You're not recognizing that as a separate instrument, but on this record, this is a guy who really does recognize the fundamental difference there and uses it to its fullest potential. Yeah, he's interested in the space around each note, for instance. Um, this, for, for a first recording... Or at least by this project, this sounds really good. This uh, is very nice. Yeah, like the production is really good. Um, and you know, there's there's a confidence in the melodic ideas being presented in the way that he lets each note sort of just hang, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like you could push the tempo faster, right? No. Um, and uh, you know, the the string arrangement is good and simple. Uh, something that reminds me of specifically would be San Hagal, uh, who I think most people agree are one of the best latter-day neo-folk bands, where it's obviously neo, but it does have a relationship to real sort of European folk music. They're German. Um, they release records very infrequently. Hopefully we're, we're due for a new one soon. But uh, Ackerwasser is the, the last one. Um and, you know, they have sort of dense melodic, dense arrangements, which helps in the kind of, in a genre that's often all too sparse, right? So here, the nice use of the, you know, the using the sort of the strings that just sort of flow in there is a very Sanhagal thing. Uh, same with that sort of like uh, sad Germans in the forest kind of vibe. Uh, well, I guess something I'm interested in asking you about because I am big surprise not informed about neofolk at all um, I feel like uh, in a lot of the neofolk I've heard it tends to be primarily vocal driven music with guitars or whatever folk instruments as a sort of backing texture like obviously a lot of those melodies can be very nice but I've always felt like the primary voice in a lot of neofolk is vocal here the guitar is throughout every track uh clearly the centerpiece am i off base in saying that or 
Um, no, I don't think so. Um, you, yeah, it's certainly, there's very, I mean, one thing that's interesting about, say, the confidence on this record is that although the guitar arrangements are sparse, there are no vocals on it. So, or like not none, but there is not a steady, there are vocals that are interesting and worth talking about in your next sample. Uh, mm -hmm. But like on a lot of these songs, there's no sort of, the interesting thing about them is there's no standardized vocal line that continues over the music, right? Metal doesn't particularly emphasize vocals in the way that, say, some neo-folk does, right? But there's still a default vocal line that continues through a half or two-thirds of the track, right? Or a hundred percent of it, you know? Um, there, That layer isn't here at all. Um, I think in terms of being vocal-focused, um, something like Current 93 is very focused on a sort of unique charismatic vocal performance um a lot of the other stuff not so i i wouldn't say like you know um i don't know a lot of the you know like doug pierce is not like a conventionally good singer nor are the lines particularly cat catching um you know the uh I don't know. The um, uh, Tony Wakeford is like deliberately kind of a bad singer. Um, I think a lot of that stuff is you're supposed to listen to it very much in the aggregate. Mm -hmm. Like the because the songwriting principles come from industrial. If anything, with a lot of that stuff, I mean, Wakeford stuff, Saul Invictus does sound more folk as it, especially as it goes along. But um, <laughs> that's a that's a band that I know. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as it gets more like, uh, yeah, so I mean, blah, brain fart. Point being, um, a lot of the canon canonical early neo folk stuff really should be listened to as like ambient or industrial music, where some of the, the focal point, if anything, is often on the things that seem like extras, like uh, samples or atmospheric noise stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that'll kind of get to my sample, you know, the idea of these extras. So, like I said, as a guy that knows very little about this style of music, apart from, I don't know, I I like Rome. I like uh, Dead Can Dance. Are those neo-folk? I don't, I don't fucking know. <laughs> Dead uh, Can Dance is uh, neo-folk. I think Dead Can Dance spent their whole career studiously not noticing neo-folk. <laughs> well, while probably noticing it. However, I think they also had a huge influence on that scene. I mean, that's Dead Condens is kind of like what if neo folk, but like seriously talented musicians. Okay, and and Rome <laughs> is Rome neo folk. Yeah, but it's he took it more in this kind of singer songwriter direction, which I, I mean, you know, I I think I love hate relationship with. Okay, so I, I have no idea what neo-folk is in that case. <laughs> but, uh, um, so, like you said, you know, focusing on the extras. So I, I want to go to the fourth track. Um, there's some, so like you said, this is not really like vocally driven music. Uh, and even more than that, this is not driven by harsh vocals. But here is a section of harsh vocals over this acoustic music. And... Uh, Typically, I 
when black metal bands try to do that, I usually find it kind of silly. But here it mm. really lands. Uh, a lot of this music has this uh, kind of dry, arid quality to it. There's almost this uh, this like desert sensation to it. Um, and I think that works with his vocals, which have this kind of brittle, ghoulish quality to it. Um, so you're going to hear some really cool methods of implementing those kinds of vocals over this music and then we're going to get into more of this intricate folk music with a really interesting kind of pseudo key change when a flute comes in and i think this one really stuck out to me as probably my favorite track on the record my there's an interesting kind of head fake thing there you know with a you know the vocals are so kind of like intense and ostentatious you think that's going to be the foundation of the rest of the song you know this is this sample comes about a minute in so you're thinking maybe that's an intro and maybe this is the focus of the rest of this track but it's actually not you know you've got this kind of languid yet harsh vocal passage it's really interesting vibe there but then it kind of dissolves back into the guitar, and then you realize, oh, the focus is this, like, arcing flute melody. 
that manipulates the guitars under it as a result. I just structurally it's really interesting to me. This really grabbed my ear when I heard it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is definitely one of the highlights. Um the vocals are like, I mean, they're really cool. Those are the kind of black metal vocals you like, right? They're very Attila. Um yeah, yeah, they're very they're theatrical in they're the right way. Theatrical in the way that you could imagine odd vocals in a traditional folk setting being like sort mm-hmm. of storytelling it's almost like storytelling and taking on the role of a demon or something um well it's interesting because like it, at least the first line there is in in english which i thought was interesting you know, what did he say aching bones hmm. yeah. my aching bones yeah i i didn't even pick up on that um, yeah, no, I heard that. I was like, well, that's very distinctly English there. And I think mm-hmm. the rest of the vocals on this record are in yeah. Hindi or the, some sort of regional dialect. The dry sound is definitely good for that because it gets this sort of like rattling, deep resonance to the vocals. And then it drops out over some throat singing stuff, which again seems con- convincingly conjures up sort of like... Uh, mountain storyteller kind of vibes um mm-hmm. the uh but yeah they're good and those would play well on a black metal record too you know if you mic'd them they'd be really heavy but here they're almost whispery um yeah yeah uh yeah also you can hear the kind of riffiness in the guitar playing he's using raga scales there in the middle right ding 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 right um, those are kind, but they're kinds that you would hear on a black metal record even in '93, right? Like Enslaved has been using melodies like that since. Well, we were just talking about Viking Lair Veldi. I'm pretty sure there are melodies like that on there. Yeah, I mean it's all reaching back to primordial Indo-European stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's like we, sort of... we always talk about that that weird similarity between kind of like old Indo-European stuff and you know. Celtic music and blues, you know, all of these kind well, of scales interrelating. Yeah, well, I mean, Celtic stuff has that Indo-European root, right? Blues does mm-hmm. not, and yet they converge, right, in yeah. around sort of... But blues, I wouldn't say blues has anything to do harmonically with this particularly. No, um, no, no, just just you get certain just follow certain like those, those passing tones, you know? Mm-hmm. follow certain scales back to their roots right um uh but but here yeah so here there's this um yeah it's a language that works in indian music as it works in deliberately ancient sounding metal right or the classic example is the bolzer riff right but mm-hmm. um uh but yeah so it's not and there's something cool about that it's not hitting anyone's Although he's really interested in the regional stuff, he's not hitting anyone over the head with it for novelty. And there's a version of a band like this, right, that is highly... uh, You could do a band that looks vaguely like this on paper, right? And it could be, you know, Bandcamp Daily, Pitchfork, whatever, right? Um, uh, You know, NPR interview. This is clearly not that at all. Mm and you know there's a nothing to prove here and nothing to uh no self-exoticism um which is cool um 
so yeah as far as uh you know let's go to um the fifth track right this is uh as far as that sort of blending places where you know european and indian music sort of converge around a common root well that that last riff was a good example of that here's an example of stuff that sounds very european being layered with stuff that sounds very indian in an interesting way slide down at the end is really cool oh yeah that um, transition into the uh final riff on that sample is and, really awesome and that is extremely metal that's a pig yeah. slide basically um and it drops down to root drops from a sort of like key change flight drops down to drone root note in exactly the way a black metal song does uh and you can hear him at the end that riff was also at the start it really that's not folk guitar that's a riff um yeah and um that like that's a black metal riff basically and you can hear him sort of patiently building it phrase by phrase when it drops back in there's a because like all the other stuff it's made of these sort of understated delicate little musical little like you know four note sequences right or six note sequences or whatever uh you can hear how the whole the whole thing that someone might write as a continuous tremolo line, he just like is, he, here's the first phrase, here's the second phrase, here's the third, here's the fourth. And you can just basically like watch the riff sort of materialize. Yeah, yeah, you can hear him building it in front of you in a very material way, which is pretty cool. Yeah, he's, he's kind um, of like taking black metal melodies, disassembling them into arpeggiated phrases, and then yeah. it's like half of a track is about reconstructing that riff from beginning to end i like that yeah it's um yeah and you know there's a way that 
I don't know if he wants to do this, but he could easily record most of the songs on here as black metal tracks. Not to, like, replace, not to do a replacement version of this record or anything like that, but, like, it would be such a different way of playing them from the original that it wouldn't even sound like, it wouldn't be like some corny Gorgoroth re-recording or something. It'd just be, it'd just be interesting to hear how some of this sounds as black metal riffs. Um... A strong part that neither of us ended up sampling, maybe because I thought you'd pull it or something, is a nice area with some... Maybe it comes in right before the harsh vocal sample you took. Some nice area with, like, meshed female... Really cool layering of female vocal samples. Yeah, I got a little bit of that on my sample. But, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it peaks out and fits and starts... I mean, part of what makes those moments so interesting is the fact that so much of this record is dedicated to very isolated spare acoustic guitar. So when a new voice kind of emerges, it's a dramatic moment, you know, even without, you know, a, a dramatic kind of transition within the riff itself. But usually those are compounded onto each other which makes for these big very again kind of black metal swings in uh in emotion and theme uh which is really interesting like this is basically in a lot of ways like an acoustic black metal record more than like structurally you know based on the sounds that we're hearing yes this is a neo-folk record but i i feel like that the heart of this really lives in black metal yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I mean, I could have said this up front, maybe. It's entire, I might, there's a possibility he simply doesn't listen to neo-folk proper. Um, but I think that certain parts of it, especially on the big, like that first sample you took, the kind of strummed chords there, like sort of like, I don't know, it's been a long time since I played acoustic guitar, but those kind of like dense, dense droning sort of, uh, I don't know, like sustained sus chords or whatever that he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very Death and June thing to do. You could, I guess, get tones like that in black metal, but um, it's uh, there are certain parts of it that does sound like he listens to neo folk. But you could have something very much like this album just from listening to black metal. Yeah, and um, um, speaking, you want to do your metal. yes, yeah. I had the segue prepared. We're good. <laughs> I was I was so. trying to do I was trying to I was like okay that's enough from me I was trying to help you out. Oh well, thank you, Black Metal guy. But uh, so uh, seventh track, second to last, uh, an over cover, Austin for Sol og Vestin for Mane, uh, something like that. Um, so I I think that we've been slowly coming around to the idea that. M <laughs> maybe much to our chagrin Ulver is more important than maybe a lot of underground people have given them credit for um, and especially here you know stuff off Kveldsanger uh, which is uh, this the record this they cover from uh, this could be obviously material to a lot of folk and neo-folk especially with the direction that Ulver went later on, experimenting with neo-folk, industrial, ambient music, etc. Uh, they've always been kind of connected to that scene. Um, Ulver has always been keen to demonstrate how little metal they listen to. Um, <laughs> the, the one in, in a band whose career is composed entirely of gestures, the one cool gesture he ever made was wearing the coil, uh, 
the coil ver the coil chaos magic version of the black sun on the back of his jacket. Um, <laughs> Natten's madrigal is still great. <laughs> all right. So okay. Well, we're probably gonna. Um, yeah. Okay. So you've, you've heard our feelings on Oliver. However, we cannot deny that for the first three records, they were very talented musicians. Right. Yes, they were. So let's uh, let's listen to some of this cover. I guess one of the interesting things about hearing this cover is it actually kind of brings into relief you know we talked about how this in a lot of ways sounds more like European folk than mm -hmm. what we might expect but hearing this very directly Nordic folk song played mm -hmm. against the rest of the material on this record shows that oh there actually are bigger differences than maybe we perceived up front you know because obviously like, this sounds radically different from the bulk of the material on this record. Well, it's um. What would you think? What would you think constitutes the difference? Oh, I I, I just think certain like melodic intervals, the interplay between the riffs on the Ulver track, is extremely different. the The structuring the the way different elements emerge and disappear is very different from what you hear on the rest of it. I guess it really comes down to primarily structural differences. Yeah, his stuff is, I would say that the basic harmonic ideas are pretty similar. His stuff is um, much sparser. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think that's the difference between sort of folk and neo-folk. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I get what you mean. Um, the... Um, 
You know, there is also a possibility that some of the things that we are hearing on as Euro folk on the acoustic stuff actually have some precedent in Himalayan music, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, so, uh, it's, um, but yeah, the, oh, the, the vocal stuff that I was talking about is actually on this, right? Mm -hmm. That, that sort of nice sequence of layered female vocals is on, Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that was the over cover. Oh, there's, well, there's other moments of female vocals throughout the record, but they're the most obvious here. There's nice overlay of them, I think, here. They're, Mm -hmm. um, uh... That's some specifically neo-folky kind of sample mongering where you're like mm-hmm. using the, you know, you, you just get like a few, you get someone to record a few little vocal patterns and you layer them into this cool kind of polyphonic thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, all right. So, I mean, I guess the, the, the concluding thought is, you know, what? Where do you th- where do you think this is gonna fall on on future records? Do you think it's gonna go further into this kind of European direction, or do you think that maybe the like Himalayan influence is gonna come out more? I think the latter would be my guess because um, I think probably there's a challenge in how do you integrate the not just like generally subcontinental sounding melody, right? But like the, you know, sort of indigenous folk forms, right? Right. We're not even, we're not talking just generally Indian here, right? We're talking regional, intensely regional identity within, right? Within that area. And probably identities that spread across national borders to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, you know, he, uh, yeah, so, so I, I think the fact that he's interested in the field recording aspect of it suggests he's very serious about, my guess is he would develop that side more in the future, but I think there's a question about how do you integrate it.
Until the landscape is paved